HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste-is-everything-cost-be-damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and I am here today with Rachel Ford. She is the national brand ambassador for Tanqueray Gin. Um, excited to have you on the show, Rachel. Welcome to In the Drink. Thank you. Good morning. We like to start our show with uh, a talk a little bit about what our favorite drink of the past week has been. Uh, I'll give you a moment to think about it. Um, uh, really easy for me. Last night at Lartuzzi, we had a winemaker dinner with Alessia Antonori, and uh, she is releasing the first wines from her new project at the Fiorano Estate right outside of Rome. It's a state that she inherited from her grandfather, and she's replanting all of the, the vines exactly to the way that he that he had done them. Um, so we had the first release of Alessia's Fiorano Rosso, and she brought the rarest, one of the, probably the rarest Italian wine bottle I have ever tasted, uh, Fiorano Rosso 1993, which in the seven years that I've known this one, I've never seen a bottle for sale. Um, so it was a night of old and new Fiorano wines with Alessia Antonori and that uh, that Rosso 1993, which was like youthful and vibrant and elegant but rustic. It's like a noble farmer. Uh, it was an awesome, awesome wine. Um, and for you, Rachel, welcome. Uh, you're that gin expert, but what, and I know you go around to many uh, cocktail bars around the city, lots of restaurants. What what have you had anything inspiring uh, to you in the last uh, week or so that you'd like to share with us? Absolutely. Well, you've had my mouth watering for that Italian wine, um, but my most standout cocktail I had all week. I had the pleasure of being in Portland for Portland Cocktail Week. Mm-hmm. Just got back and I discovered a little gem of a cocktail bar that had a quiet little dark corner table and a cold, delicious martini. Um, I think. Probably a four to one ratio is how I was enjoying it with an olive and some oysters. 
And that was really my standout. And what drink. was the name of this cocktail bar? Do you know? It is in the Ace Hotel under Clyde Common, and mm-hmm. it's called Pepe Lamoco. Pepe Lamoco. It sounds like they'd have a good drink of Pepe Lamoco. <laughs> it's a hidden gem. I would recommend it, except while I'm there, because I need that corner table again next year. Now, Rachel, <laughs> you have an interesting story. Um, you moved to New York uh, with your husband, who's a high school sweetheart of yours, and you guys are both bartenders. And then, and now you're both doing the same thing, which is you are uh, you're both repping uh, high quality liquor products. Um, how how tell us about this this progression? Uh, is this something that you pictured yourself doing? Um, and how did this all work out for you? I don't know that we would have pictured as high school sweethearts where we would be now exactly, uh, which is probably a good thing. But um, it's definitely something that's progressed over the years. And we must be crazy to want to spend so much time working together and in the same field. Um, But it it became a very natural fit for us fresh out of college and working in corporate jobs that we just did not feel fulfilled and felt this creative pull. And so we found it through the cocktail and spirits industry. So I wouldn't have it any other way, but I don't think we pictured it. Now, you know, the, the position of a brand rep gets a bad rap. Um, you're, you're one who is uh, very well liked in the industry, even affectionately known as Lady Tanqueray. Um, why do you think that the brand rep gets a bad rap? Do you think that's even an accurate uh, portrayal? I do think in some cases it can be an accurate portrayal. Um, I think for for many of the professionals I know on the national level and the local level, there are some amazing ambassadors who are changing that tone completely. Um, but part of our job is going into a bar, into someone's work environment, and trying to build a relationship or ask for cocktails with our products and Think of even an office worker. If you had someone bombarding you at your desk who always wanted something from you, there would be you know, a sense of, of stress and, of, oh, no, here comes that person again. So I think the mark of a great brand ambassador sometimes is someone who has been in their shoes, who has been a bartender, who has been a, a craft cocktail bartender, mixologist, or whatever you want to call it. But that level of experience, I know when to not approach someone. I know how to approach someone because I know what I would have wanted. Yes. And what, what are some of those, those tools? Like tell us, ex- explain the job. Like, is it just about going around drinking cocktails and trying to fill, form relationships and get people to carry your spirit? Or is there more that goes into it? There is so much more. I mean, it is above all, it's really an educator position. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend the bulk of my time traveling the country, educating everyone from service staff to bartenders to just enthusiasts, people that like gin or cocktails. Um, There is so much passion and knowledge to share. So that's at the forefront of what I do. And beyond that, it's discovering new techniques and up and coming bartenders and cocktails that people are resurrecting or dreaming up. So it's really spreading good faith and loyalty for the brands and building a rapport with the people that are at the forefront. Yeah. And and how do you do that? Is it a, a cold call situation? Do you walk in and say, hey, I'm from Tanqueray? Do you try to set, set up an email situation at first? And, all right. Well, are there great, what are the great challenges? I mean, I can, I can, I, I know this as someone who buys, uh, who buys wine and, and, and liquor for, for our restaurants, it's, uh, time is very limited. And if I'm going to meet with someone, maybe I don't want to meet with someone who just has one product. Maybe I want to meet with someone who has lots of things for me to try. 
and that's where the bad rep comes in, mm-hmm. um, or bad rap, pardon me. But for me, I'm so fortunate that that's not really my role. My role is more to come swoop up a bar stool and sit in front of the bartender and watch what's going on and just observe, ask questions, um, build a friendship almost through a cocktail, which is the best place to, to form friendships, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, mine is much more of the role of an observer, a friend, and an educator than someone coming in trying to sell you on something. And tell us about the time when you were making the transition from someone who was working more in in restaurants. Um, I know that uh, you, you started you also started a company with your husband, Ford Mixology Lab, which I do want to talk about. Um, to, towards that transition of, of working more as the educator and uh, ambassador for the spirits, were you was that something at that time you had you had ideas of your was it that the grind of the daily restaurant working till two a.m. three a.m. was was tough or did did Tanqueray approach you with this great opportunity? How did that work out? Ooh, there's so many levels to the story. But when I started my bartending career in San Francisco, there were a lot of great role models ahead of us who we watched transition from being rock star bartenders to brand ambassadorship and being a couple that always is thinking of the next goal, the next step, what we'll achieve after this. It was something that we set our sights on. We thought that might be the role that we want to take once we're done learning as much as we can and and being in the bartending role. And so when we started pursuing that, both of us agree that only a brand that we're passionate about is one that we would want to represent. Mm-hmm. And Tanqueray was truly my gin that I enjoyed. It was actually the first gin that I ever tasted when I was 22. And it's really been my go-to ever since then. I mean, my desert island gin that I would take with me. So when I was sitting one night at a bar that's now defunct in the Lower East Side, Victor and Spoils. Of course. A yeah. f- few years ago, I happened to be sitting next to a gentleman who would later become my employer. And he happened to note that I've seen you before. I know you're a bartender. We have an opening. If you know anyone who's interested in being the brand ambassador for Tanqueray, give me a call. And you're like, me, 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 me. I went right home from the bar, you know, one or two martinis in and sent him a cover letter and a resume and the rest is history. Amazing. Amazing. So you put you really put yourself out there, and and not, I don't I don't want to make this all about Tanqueray, but but why was why why do you love Tanqueray? Why what's so different? It's a London Dry style uh, of gin. Uh, I like it personally very much, um, but what's what separates it from other from other drinks? It truly is the benchmark for the category. It is a product that was created in 1832 by a then 22-year-old gentleman named Charles Tanqueray, which I think back to what I was doing at 22, and I don't know that anyone will be doing it in 180 years. Yeah, lifespan in London at that time was about 40 <laughs> years old, so he was like middle-aged. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but he, was, he was quite the innovator and pioneer, and it really it has that classic gin flavor profile. It is what gin tastes like, and it is so mixable in cocktails. I could go on and on, but um, it's a product I'm very passionate about. So what's your opinion on the new gins that are being produced locally and uh, what do they offer the landscape? What, why does that, how does Tanqueray separate from the, the local gins? Well, I think it's great. I mean, 20 years ago or so, there might have been eight gins that were available if you visited a bar. And I think at last count, there is somewhere over 250 gin products distributed in the United States alone. So what that's doing for our category as a whole is really bringing people over onto the side of, of drinking gin again. And it was the preferred white spirit in cocktails 
for so long, then prohibition happened and the landscape shifted, Mm -hmm. but we're really bringing people over from the vodka side into the gin category. And all of the small local up and coming brands are really helping to make gin friends for all of us. And they're they're not making it more challenging. Instead, it's, it's spreading the spreading the love. You know, I actually, I, I like local gin quite a bit. I think that it's a, a much more promising product than local whiskey, for instance, because the whiskey um, distilleries here in, in New York, at least, are, are so new and great whiskey needs so much time to, to age that I think in 10 years, we probably will have really, really wonderful New York whiskeys. But the early gins are, are, are I think, are, are pretty high quality. Yes, and it will be interesting to see how the gin landscape changes with mm-hmm. those local brands when they are able to release their whiskeys. I think that's a goal for a lot of the distillers that are making gin right now. Is it's it's an immediate product that they can put out while they're working on other things that take time. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see. So what sorts of drinks do you think that that Tanqueray is better for, um, as opposed to like one of these like local American style gins or like what what is a great classic London Dry Tanqueray drink where that's the best that's the best example the best best use of that as opposed to another gin. Ooh, this is a a good but tough question because I think people should drink what it is that they like. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever you prefer in your Negroni and your gin and tonic is something that I'm not going to tell you, no, you should change your preference. Um, but I think the the thing about London Dry Gin is that it does have that that bold juniper flavor, which is what classifies a gin as a gin. And it stands up beautifully with bitter notes like the Campari and a Negroni and the um, quinine in a gin and tonic. I would use Tanqueray London Dry over one of our other expressions of Tanqueray in those two cocktails. In a martini, Tanqueray number 10 might shine, which is like a new world style of gin. It would compare more probably to some of the, the newer on the market products. Um, but there's there's a reason for, for all flavor profiles. We're lucky to have a few of them that I, I always have a Tanqueray to put in my cocktail. Yes. And can you just go through them? It's Tanqueray 10, Tanqueray London Dry. We re-released last year our kind of mythical unicorn Tanqueray Malacca. The Malacca, that's right. It's a grapefruity, fruity, food forward one. Is that correct? It's it's a mystery. Uh, oh. It's the only one that <laughs> is a proprietary blend, but people say that they detect black pepper, white pepper. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard raspberries, and now when I taste it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally get that raspberry, which apparently orris root, a common gen ingredient, the DNA structure of orris root is very similar to the DNA of a raspberry. It's about as geeky as I will get on your show, but it may be that there is an orris root presence in it. We can handle a little geek. It's okay. <laughs> we, can, we can definitely handle a little geek. Do you, do you know the proprietary blend? I do not. I can tell you what's in all the other marks of Tanqueray, but that is the wow. only one. Um, it's inspired by an 1839 recipe of Charles Tanqueray's as he traveled the Malaysian spice trade route. And I don't know. I suspect that we don't release the, the build of what's in it because mm-hmm. it is something that we discontinued. People begged for it back for 14 years. We made one batch. It's not coming back. And so we're keeping that as kind of a secret, I think. Wow. So if you see a bottle of Malacca and you're interested in it, just get it because it's not going to be released again. Yes. It's a one-time thing. We cool. just released another limited edition that's a one-time project that's our Tanqueray Old Tom. Yes. I did want to ask about that. People, uh, I know bartenders are getting really excited about that one. It's 
It's a really exciting time for Old Tom Gin because Old Tom is a historical category that represents a point in time in gin. And when you look at what's been on the market, it's like comparing apples to oranges. They come in every color. They come in every flavor profile. And we were creating an Old Tom from 1835 until 1932. So of the Old Toms on the market, we have knowledge of what our recipe was, what it would have tasted like, and it really allows us to go back and recreate cocktails, kind of imagine that that might be how they tasted. Interesting. All right. I want to talk a little bit more about the history of gin with you and about the Ford Mixology Lab, but we're going to have to take a quick break right now. We'll see you back in a bit. Mixer's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Mixer's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Mixer's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Mixer's master distiller says it's just right. Mictor's Cosby Dam Tastes Everything Attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food and Wine Magazine called Mictor's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said it's amazing, and the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Mictor's: phenomenal. For more information, visit mictor's.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Mictor's. And we're back on In the Drink. Um, your host Joe Campanelli here with Rachel Ford, national brand ambassador for Tanqueray, and uh, co-founder along with her husband of Ford Mixology Lab, which we're, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, shortly. Um, but we were we were getting into the Old Tom Gin. Um, and the revival of that uh, uh, in terms of interest amongst bartenders and uh, certainly the, the new Old Tom Gin revival from, uh, from Tanqueray. Um, it's, the, the history of gin is, is kind of super interesting, right? It's, uh, for a long time, it was, it was oak-aged. Um, early gins that were brought into the States had some sweetness to them even. Um, so this London dry style that, that's popular today is something that maybe the years just before prohibition when people liked kind of cleaner, stronger, uh, spirits, uh, that's, that's where that time comes from. But now w- with more of an interest in the origins of the cocktail, these older styles like old Tom gin are being, uh, are being revived. Um, and I'm sure that you, you have an even more intimate knowledge of this. Tell us what, what qualifies something as an old Tom gin? Where did it get its name from? How did that work? Oh, there's such a a great history and so many stories, Um, but it really designates a period in time when the English saw the Dutch making their Geneva and more likely saw them consuming it on the battlefield when they fought together in the Thirty Years' War. 
they heard about this Dutch courage, saw it in action, wanted to recreate it in England. And they started making gin. And that early gin that they were producing was called Old Tom. And uh, there's a lot of different stories about why, including a Tom cat, um, which is one of my favorites. But it would have been sweetened, most likely, with either sugar or oftentimes licorice, which is a natural sweetener. And a cocktail book from starting with Jerry Thomas up until about the end of Prohibition, I'd say, if you see a cocktail recipe calling for gin, it's not calling for London Dry, as you mentioned, which was perfected when our technology got better after the patent of the coffee still in 1830. But it would have been calling for an old Tom. So to have someone producing an old Tom that they would have produced when it would have been consumed is really exciting to go back and try cocktails and kind of imagine that that's what it would have tasted like. And the, the, but the old Toms that are generally produced, they might be a little bit drier than the ones that, that we would have seen back then. Is that accurate? That's part of the magic of, of old Tom is that no one has really known exactly. I mean, there have been some products on the market that have been incredibly well researched and they all have, like we talked about the newer gens and the, the older gens, there is a purpose for all products, um, but they come in all different flavor profiles. I mean, some are sweetened with newer ingredients mm -hmm. that wouldn't existed, like agave nectar. Um, others are barrel aged. They're made of different mash builds. It's all across the board. Yeah. And so you're originally from California and, uh, and now you're in New York and obviously yes. you travel all over. How you characterize the New York cocktail scene and where... Where are there some other exciting places to, to drink? Um, obviously, saying anything other than New York is the best would be wrong. But uh, <laughs> um, no, how, tell, tell us about, about your travels and what, what, you, what you've discovered. Well, starting our bartending career in San Francisco, um, we always thought that New York was the pioneer. It was what we were all aiming to achieve. And Kyle and I kind of were misled in our own minds that New York was quote unquote better. And what we learned once we moved here was that the styles are incredibly different. San Francisco and other West Coast cities have the benefit of produce that's grown year round closer to home, which is actually how Ford Mixology Lab started. We would go to the local farmer's market every week, get ingredients and make our own syrups, infusions and cocktail ingredients. But when we moved to New York, the focus here is really on perfecting classics, I think. Um, we are the, the kings of the stirred and spiritus cocktail, as opposed to the citrus-driven sour cocktails mm -hmm. that were so popular on the West Coast. Because you can get citrus at the farmer's market on the West Coast. You can't, you, you can't get that here. You can get everything at the farmer's market wow. on the West Coast. It just it, We have a wonderful farmer's market here as well, but it's very seasonal, which even goes for the weather and fashion. I mean... There's four seasons here, and that includes produce and times for different cocktails. San Francisco, it was really easy to walk up to the farmer's market and buy a Buddha's hand lemon and go home and infuse our own citrus gin or whatever it may be any time of the year. Um, but depending on where the city is located geographically, that seems to have a huge impact on the cocktail scene, mm. which is kind of second nature to think about, but, but it really, it's very impactful. Interesting. Uh, for some reason, for when, when I speak to people who travel a lot uh, on this show, they always, and I ask, where is a surprising place to find really good things to eat and drink? 
Uh, Charleston comes up a lot, but also Birmingham, Alabama. Have you ever been to Birmingham? I have not, but I'm going to Charleston <laughs> this year for the Food and Wine Festival. Um, but no, I have not been to Birmingham. So, so let's start a new trend. Where is a, a surprisingly amazing place to to drink delicious cocktails that has uh, a really great cocktail community that, that we might not know about? Ooh, well, I'm always dazzled when I visit um, Seattle, Portland, they were places that were so close to San Francisco where I cut my teeth, but I rarely visited. Um, I've seen great things going on in Atlanta and different cities in Texas. And what I think hits me the most when I visit places, Dallas just really dazzled me at a new cocktail bar, actually. But the close-knit community that I witnessed in San Francisco and then again in New York, it's present in all of these cities. And they have exciting, thriving groups that are are bound together to bring cocktails to the forefront on their scene. And it's exciting to watch newer markets kind of grow and evolve and the older tried and true cocktail towns change shape. And it's been really fun to travel and see that. So I have to ask you this because I am a, a fan of the, of the show. Uh, you've been on Bar Rescue. <laughs> um, I, I, it's like I watch it and it, I kind of watch it the way I watch like uh, Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares where it makes me cringe. It's like that's the closest thing I'll come to watching a horror movie because it, it makes me <laughs> so uncomfortable and... Uh, and anxious to see these bars and restaurants doing so poorly. Um, and I love it when people are really open to, to feedback, but it makes me really upset. when <laughs> It's an emotional thing for me to watch Bar Rescue or Rescue Kitchen Nightmares, uh, <laughs> is what I'm saying. But what, what have you found is the, uh, the biggest challenge that most of these bars face, um, and, and bars in general, during your travels? I think it all starts from the management and ownership. I think that the biggest plight of an up-and-coming bartender trying to pave their way is maybe working in an establishment where they want to better themselves, they want to better the quality of cocktails, they want to build an excited client base, but maybe management is thinking of dollar signs instead of bringing in fresh ingredients or um, looking at the bottom line instead of building the kind of restaurant or bar that those gentlemen like Gordon Ramsay and John Taffer are perhaps trying to transform a place into. Um, but I think a lot of us up and coming start in places where we don't really have the ability to reach our full potential because of a trickle down effect. Mm -hmm. And then the magic happens when we're able to spread our wings and land in a place that's really on board with those things. Yeah. I mean, I always say you always have to play the long game. This isn't uh, about the dollar you're going to make that night. It's about the dollar you're going to make in a few weeks or in a few months or in a few years. Because if you're, if, if you're giving a great quality product and great service, people are going to come back. If it's just about how much money can you make off of that one drink that night, then there, there's no soul to that. There's no longevity to that. I've seen so many of my peers who are consulting on projects get hired to come in and quote unquote fix a bar or make it profitable. And they've fought this battle of we need fresh juice. You know, lemon juice comes from a lemon. It doesn't come from a bottle. And you watch the owners, if they're not fully committed to that vision, a few weeks later after the consultant has made this fancy menu and brought in a great team one by one, those things start falling off. The The fresh juice goes away and then everyone starts leaving to go somewhere that supports yeah. what they're working towards. And all of a sudden it's 
you know, it all crumbles. So a buy-in is the most important thing. Right. Yeah, because something like fresh juice isn't just saying, okay, I'm going to buy fresh juice. It's everyone has to be involved. You need someone to order the lemons and someone to cut and to juice them and then to make sure that everything's labeled and that it's not being used for days and days and days mm-hmm. and that it continues to be fresh. And it, it, that's it's not just as easy thing as saying, huh, I'm going to, instead of using, you know, uh, plonk well gin for my drinks when we use good, you know, good London dry tanqueray or something like that. It's, it's a, a daily maintenance and everyone being bought in and understanding what, what is that for? Why are we doing these things? You can't put a bandaid on a bar. It has to be a, a passion project. I, I think that's a good, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, and then what are some of the, the, trends that you've been seeing around it's probably something that you get interviewed and asked about a lot um but what are the trends that that are here to stay um some of the things that that i've seen that had a a moment where was the the barrel aging and then i think it died down a little bit and now i think it's kind of leveling off i don't know if you agree like some places do it and do it well and they've kind of honed it in they have one great barrel aged cocktail see a little a few more cocktails on on draft that I think is really interesting for an all spirit kind of drink. Um, what what are some of the trends that you're seeing? But what what's exciting too? Ooh, um, well, I'm definitely I agree with you. Bottle uh, bottle aging or barrel aging was a big thing. Uh, cocktails on draft I've been encountering in all different markets. Um, something that we've been doing with our traveling Tanqueray Green Room, which I think is is very true to the climate right now is we've been bringing in international bartenders to demonstrate how things are done in their bars. So when we traveled to San Francisco, we brought in a man named uh, Ueno San, who has been nominated, I believe, the last two years at Tales for Best International Bartender. And every time we've worked with him, you have this group of usually rowdy bartenders who are packed in like sardines with their mouths agape, just watching his every move. Because the way that they bartend in other countries is something that for a bartender to be able to go witness it would cost thousands of dollars and take a lengthy plane ride. But to watch it on our own soil, I'm seeing a lot of interest in, in bettering our craft in as many ways as possible, learning as much as we can and really adapting from people like Ueno-san or we had a, a bartender out of London, Monica Berg, on our last trip to Dallas that was demonstrating the, the London style, which I think is fascinating. I've competed internationally and the style that they bring to competitions from the, the UK is just, it's a whole different ball game oftentimes than what we do in the US. So I think interest in, in other countries, other cultures, other ways of doing things yes. is a big thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's been a big change over the history of, of cocktails, whereas in that 19th century, everyone was very protective, uh, uh, proprietary about their about their recipes. And then in the last few years, everyone has been much more sharing with their recipes. There And, you know, five, 10 years ago, everything cool was happening in the States. And now um, there are multiple European bars that are that are doing super, super interesting things. And in Tokyo, ama- amazing, uh, amazing things. And so this now this international sharing as well. Uh, that's the, that's the next level. And God, there, there's so much that you can that we can learn um, when these bartenders uh, use some of their local ingredients and local traditions and kind of philosophies to apply them to drinks. Um, I, I think it's, it's going to be really exciting. And it's really come full circle because the cocktail is the truly American craft. I mean, that was an American 
trade until prohibition happened. And so for at that time, our bartenders were going overseas and to now bring what they took with them and learned and adapted in other countries back is really interesting. interesting. And I want to end uh, talking about uh, you and, and your husband and Ford Mixology Lab. I, I just love the story. Um, my, my business partners, Gabe and Catherine Thompson, are, are married. Uh, and Catherine's <laughs> the pastry chef and Gabe's the executive chef. Um, and their, their relationship is just amazing to see how, how they work together. Uh, tell us about how the Ford Mixology Lab started, what, what it is. Um, I've, I've been reading your blog. I loved the, the photos of the Brooklotti distillery. That was super cool. I wish I was on that trip with you. It's one of my <laughs> favorite, uh, favorite scotches. But tell us all about it. I wish I was on that trip as well. That was oh. one of my, uh, my husband's trips that he gets to go on. But um, Kyle and I, when we started our career, we thought that our end goal was to open a bar, which may still be something in the very far future that is on our bucket list. But I remember I was walking to a shift one day and I started thinking, it was right after I first heard the term FML on social media and I had to look it up in Urban Dictionary to see what it was. And I was walking to work and I was thinking, FML, why do people sometimes go to bars? They're thinking... Hashtag FML. So then I thought, well, what could that stand for? And Ford Mixology Lab was born. So when I repeated it out loud to someone and got a positive response, and then Kyle and I talked about it, it was a natural fit for what we would call our consultancy, um, which we both have tattooed on our arms. And I oftentimes will be zoning out and have someone screaming FML from behind at me, which I... I maybe would have thought that one through a little bit more. However, um, it's really grown. When we moved to New York, it wasn't a super easy transition for us. And it was after a particularly difficult couple of months with this expensive new apartment that we decided to walk down to the courthouse and file Ford Mixology Lab as an actual business. And from that point, um, it all kinds of doors just opened. I really believe that you bring to yourself what it is that you want. We're always going for the next thing. And once we did that, it, it empowered us and allowed us to have so many opportunities, including our ambassadorship roles. So amazing. If you, if you want it, go out and get it. Absolutely. You can have anything. Well, uh, Rachel, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, it shows that, uh, that, at least, at least you. Uh, it's it's clear as to why why you're one of the very well liked uh, brand ambassadors around town. You you know your stuff. You have you have the uh, bartending credentials, dude, and just an overall super nice person. So thank you. Excited uh, excited to uh, to taste. I'm gonna look for Malacca. Maybe you can help me locate uh, one of those bottles somewhere. Uh, and thanks to all of you for listening. This has been in the drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.